Thanks, Jonathan. It is good to be back with y'all this morning, and we're just going to keep working through our series in the book of Samuel, explaining and examining the life of David. And in many ways this morning, we are just continuing uh, Drew's sermon from last week. We saw David at his worst in chapter 11, committing murder and adultery, and then we saw what it produced in Psalm 51 in worship and we, we posed the question, how do we become people who sing about our sin? And that really is the question we want to tackle this morning. How do we give God more glory because of our sinfulness? What is the bridge between 2 Samuel 11 and Psalm 51? And as I thought about this week, it reminded me of some family friends of ours growing up. They had a charter fishing boat, and they called it the Real Encounter. And it was a play on their last name. But what it communicated was this idea that you could go fish and, exp- and see the ocean in a lot of places. There are a lot of charter guides out there, but if you really want to know it, if you really want to know what it's like to be out on the waters of Florida and know what it's like to fish, then come with us because we're the real deal. In 2 Samuel 12 this morning is, is the same thing. It's an invitation to come and really experience and encounter God and his grace because that is the only path from our sinfulness and rock bottom to the glorious heights of union with God and worship. And so we'll we'll see that this this chapter is going to tell us there's a lot of places you can go to learn about God, right? Think about it. It it seems like everybody that can afford a $50 microphone has a podcast these days and a YouTube channel, and there's endless publishing opportunities. There's companies dedicated entirely to Christian literature and content. There's a lot of places you can learn about God, but the question is, have you really encountered him? Have you been confronted by his holiness and his grace? Because that experience, that is the only way we can go from sinners to worshipers, sinners to saints. And that's what we'll see in 2 Samuel 12 this morning. So let's read. It's a a pretty extended section of scripture, uh, so bear with me as I read that this morning. And the Lord sent Nathan to David. He came to him and said, There were two men in a certain city, one rich and the other poor. The rich man had very many flocks and herds, but the poor man had nothing but one little ewe lamb. And he brought it up, and it grew up with him and with his children. It used to eat of the morsel of his hand and drink from his cup and lie in his arms. It was like a daughter to him. Now there came a traveler to the rich man, and he was unwilling to take one of his own flock or herd to prepare for the guests who had come to him. So he took the poor man's lamb and prepared it for the man who had come to him. Then David's anger was greatly kindled against the man, and he said to Nathan, As the Lord lives, the man who has done this deserves to die. And he shall restore the lamb fourfold because he did this thing, because he had no pity. And Nathan said to David, You are the man. And thus says the Lord, the God of Israel, I anointed you king over Israel and gave you, and I delivered you out of the hand of Saul, and I gave you your master's house and your master's wives into your arms, and I gave you the house of Israel and Judah. And if this were too little, I would add just as much more. Why have you despised the Lord, the word of the Lord, to do what is evil in his sight? You have struck down Uriah the Hittite with the sword and have taken his wife to be your wife and have killed him with the sword of the Ammonites. Now, therefore, the sword shall never depart from your house because you have despised me and taken the wife of Uriah the Hittite to be your wife. 
And thus says the Lord, Behold, I will raise up evil against you out of your own house. And I will take your wives from before your eyes and give them to your neighbor, and he shall lie with them in the sight of the sun. For you did it in secret, but I will do this thing before all Israel and before the sun. David said to Nathan, I have sinned against the Lord. And Nathan said to David, The Lord has put away your sin, and you shall not die. Nevertheless, because by this deed you have utterly scorned the Lord, the child who is born to you shall die. And Nathan went to his house. And the Lord afflicted the child that Uriah's wife bore David, and he became sick. David therefore sought God on behalf of the child, and David fasted and went in and lay all night on the ground. And skipping down a couple verses to 19. But when David saw that the servants were whispering together, David understood that the child was dead, and he said to his servants, Is the child dead? And they said, He is dead. Then David arose from the earth and washed and anointed himself and changed his clothes, and he went into the house of the Lord, and he worshipped. He then went to his own house, and when he asked, they set food before him, and he ate. Then his servants said to him, What is this thing that you have done? You fasted and wept for the child while he was alive, but when the child died, you arose and ate food. He said, While the child was still alive, I fasted and wept, for I said, Who knows whether the Lord will be gracious to me, that the child may live. But now he is dead. Why should I fast? Can I bring him back again? I shall go to him, but he will not return to me. Then David comforted his wife Bathsheba and lay with her, and she bore a son, and he called his name Solomon, and the Lord loved him. And sent a message by Nathan the prophet. So he called his name Jedidiah because of the Lord. Uh, So say this with me. The grass withers and the flower fades but the word of our God stands forever. And so as we look at the text today, uh, it really is a a heavy one in a lot of ways, but this really is a story of God's grace. God's grace through and through, and so we'll see as as we look at it that God's grace is pursuing us, it's disciplining us, and it's restoring us, and that's the outline in your worship folder, and that's our pathway from grace, of grace, from the rock bottom of 2 Samuel 11 to the worship of Psalm 51. So let's Look at that this morning. First, pursuing grace. God will graciously pursue his people, especially in our sin. And the text is not very subtle about it. It's the very first verse. God sent Nathan. Nathan's confrontation of David is a key factor in David experiencing God's grace. It is God pursuing him in his sin. Francis Thompson called grace the hound of heaven, chasing God's people down because Christianity says not that we can turn to God, but that even in our worst moments, he is chasing after us. He is seeking us out. And that's really what we see here. God is the main actor seeking David out, even in this sweet season of his sin. His scheming has worked. He thinks he's gotten away with one, and he has not turned back to the Lord and repented And we aren't told the time frame between chapter 11 and 12, but you have to figure at least nine months because a a baby is born. So this isn't uh, something that David has not had time to turn away from. But God does not ignore his sin. He really, he can't. And that's what 12.1 tells us, that there is no such thing as a successful sin. And that verse really does comfort me because God 
he won't leave us to succeed in our sins. He will pursue us even in them. And while that might not be a comfortable experience, it is a comforting truth that God will not let sin claim his people. God's pursuit of David is God's grace to him. The Lord sends Nathan to call David on his sin, but Nathan, he's not ham-handed about it. He's not blunt. He really has this tactful, brilliant strategy. He tells David a story. Because Nathan, he knows that we're prone to excuse or dismiss or become defensive over our sins, especially the big ones. And so he has the story that removes David from the equation. And now all David has to do is judge someone else's actions, and we all know how easy that is for us to do. And so we see for all the scheming that David did in chapter 11 to get away with this sin and cover it up, he cannot outscheme God. He cannot outwit God. And so Holy Spirit gave Nathan the wisdom to do some godly scheming of his own and get around David's defenses to land a blow to his sin. In the story, it works perfectly. David convicts himself. He's filled with rage, and he says, the man should die. And that's when God, in his grace, convicts David. Nathan has been teeing this up the whole time, and he delivers the punchline, you are the man. But like we said, Nathan is really, he's surgical about this. Keller said it best, I think. He said, God sent Nathan not with a sword to smite, but a scalpel to remove a tumor. See, God's gracious pursuit will always confront us in our sins, but he always does so to reach our hearts. That's what he's after. David, now that he's been able to judge from the outside, is actually almost in the position of God. He's seen the grossness and the destructiveness of his sin. He has felt the rage that God feels against sin, and it melts his heart. And that's when Nathan can really strike, because see, our hearts, they're hardened by sin, and they become like metal. They're brittle and resistant to change. But when we experience God's pursuing grace in our sin... Our hearts become melted, and then he can shape them and form them. And now that David's heart is melted, Nathan reminds him of the good that God has done to him. He gives him, it's like an itemized receipt of all the graces that God has given David throughout the years. And then he has this great line at the end, if that were not enough, I would still give you more. See, in David's sin, he had forgotten how generous God is. God is not stingy or withholding. He is not out to get you. He is gracious and generous and loving. And once he goes through those, he, he gets to the real charge in verse 9. The reason David forgot that, the reason David committed his sins of adultery and murder is the sin beneath the sin. He despised God's word and God himself. And friends, that is where all of our sins find their beginnings. That is the hard truth that we all need to be confronted with lovingly. Because we don't love God the way that we should. And in our worst moments when our sinful schemes have worked, when we're living unrepentantly in sin, openly despising the word of God and the God who gave it, we need God's pursuing grace to chase us down and tell us, you are the man. 
Because that indictment of David is just as much an indictment of us. I am the man. Sin is never just an out there problem. It's something in each and every one of us that we need to be graciously pursued and confronted over so we can see the depth and extent of our sin. And in this sermon, it's not supposed to be one on friendship, but I couldn't help but notice this. So as a side note, Nathan confronting David, we've said, is pivotal to his experience of God's grace. But really what he's doing is embodying gospel friendship. Proverbs says, faithful are the wounds of a friend. So if you have a Nathan in your life, someone who's willing to surgically and lovingly confront your sins, be thankful for them. And if you want to be a good friend, be a Nathan. And if you don't have a friend like this, or if you have not been a friend like this, then pray. Pray that Holy Spirit would make you one. And then build friendships with people here in this church, because uh, the Holy Spirit loves to work through the fellowship of believers. Give someone an open season hunting license on your sin to come and confront you whenever you want. Because we all need that. Uh, but to get back on track, we, we've seen God's grace confronts us and pursues us. Uh, and so we know that his grace is not mere niceness. It's something more than that. David has already issued a conviction of himself based on the law. He says he deserves death, and he's right. The wages of sin are death. That's what scripture tells us, and God does not disagree with him. He doesn't just brush over it. And while his pursuit is always one of love and grace, he cannot overlook or sweep under the rug. It means he will tackle the sin head on because sin is destructive and corrosive, and it takes away health and home as David learns. It will never give you more than it takes away from you. But God, God will always give you more than he requires of you. And that is what David is reminded of when he hears, The Lord has put away your sin, you shall not die. David is justified by God's pursuing grace. And so David has spared the punishment of his sin, but he's not spared the consequences of it. God will use the consequences of his sin to discipline his son. And that's the second point. God graciously orchestrates the circumstances of our lives and consequences of our actions to draw us closer to him. God is a loving father, and he is faithful to discipline all those who he calls to himself. Because as C.S. Lewis said, love is something more stern and splendid than mere kindness. And so we see in between Nathan issuing the charge, you are the man in the verdict, the Lord has put away your sin, you shall not die. He still declares discipline from God. And I think it really offends our modern sensibilities. We don't like the idea that God would orchestrate the events in our lives to discipline us. But I believe that's really because we have confused discipline and punishment. Any parent in the room knows that discipline is a necessary tool to love your child well. Allowing harmful behavior to continue is not loving to the child or anyone else around them. And God, he is a father, the best father, doing the best fathering of anyone ever. And if that's the case, then he is not going to be this uninvolved, sentimental figure that's removed from the situation. He will be intimately involved in the raising of his children for their good. 
And so we see in verses 10 through 12 the list of discipline that the Lord brings about. There will be the sword that will not depart from his house, open rebellion against his throne. There will be adultery and there will be the death of his child. Those are the consequences of David's sin. And so here's the essential distinction we want to make as we think about that. David was not punished for his sin. That's what Hebrews 11 tells us. Punishment is what Christ bore on the cross. God's cup of wrath was poured out on him once and for all that we would never have to taste it. Meaning the smile and favor of God earned for you on the cross will never depart from you if your faith and hope are in Christ Jesus. David was disciplined for his sin. And so are we. See, that word discipline, it comes from the same root word as disciple, which means to teach, and it is a tool of God's grace to make you more like Jesus, meaning if you are a Christian, then every cross and loss in your life is something God will use to draw him closer to himself, draw you closer to himself, and make you more like Jesus. Discipline is a sanctifying grace of God. Robert Murray McShane, who's a pastor in Scotland during the 1800s, said it is the treading of the grapes that brings out the sweet juices of wine. So it is affliction that draws out submission to and complete rest in God. Make use of your afflictions while you have them. There's a reality we can only come to know God fully when we have walked through the affliction and suffering caused by our sin because that is where he meets us most intimately. That is where he meets us most fully. That is what he's saving us from. And there is a little bit of an elephant in the text, so to speak. We see the death of the child, and I wanted to give it its own treatment because it is such a uh, tough scene there in the second half of the passage. And to start, I just want to jump to verse 23. If you look there, David says, I shall go to him, but he shall not return to me. And this here, here's the comfort in that. David knows that one day he will go be reunited with his son. The Lord has that child, and one day he will be brought into the son's presence with the Lord. So let me just say, if you have lost a child, I'm sorry. I ache with you, and I hurt with you. And I pray that you can lean into this promise as well, that one day God will let us go to them. With him, in a place with no sin or suffering. Uh, And it also doesn't mean that God is punishing you for a sin. There's not a one-to-one correlation between action and God's orchestrating of discipline in our lives. If that was the case, we would all be in hell. (laughs) We don't get what we deserve. That's the whole gospel, right? The story here of David tells us that even in circumstances as painful and heartbreaking as these, God's grace and mercy are always more. And what David didn't know is that one day the true son of David, Jesus Christ himself, would die so that no other son of God would ever have to fear death again. That one day his heir would come and be the shepherd king that laid down his life for the sheep rather than the shepherd king who stole the sheep. And that one day the son of God would take the punishment of God so that David nor any other of God's people would ever have to. And because of him... Because of him, we know that God never leads us where he is not already gone. 
He is the God that walks through the pain and suffering of our own making for us and with us. And he promises to restore us from it as well. And that's really where the text leads us. God graciously restores his people by repentance. And that's the last piece connecting chapter 11 to Psalm 51. If you look at David, once he's received the charge and the consequence, he simply says, I have sinned against the Lord. Psalm 51 is not much different. His repentance is so short, and yet God forgives him. God is eager to forgive him. And the forgiveness found in repentance, that is God's delivering grace to David and to us as well. Because you see, the experience of God's confronting and pursuing and disciplining grace leads us to repentance. And when you repent, your heart and soul are restored by the presence of God. Because what is most true about God is he is the one who is steadfast in love, abundant in mercy, gracious to cover our sins as he creates a new heart within us. And then he restores us to the joy of his salvation. That is what David sings in Psalm 51. David's repentance in both the psalm and our passage this morning teaches us something essential about this repentance. It's not penance. It's not grand self-loathing or groveling where we are still the center of attention. Repentance is humbly admitting your guilt, turning from your sin, and turning to God because the goal of repentance is restoring the union of God and man. The issue with our repentance is often that it's not repentance at all. See, we want to beat ourselves up and shame ourselves until we feel like there's been an appropriate punishment or payment for our sins. But friends, let me tell you, you make light of the work of Jesus Christ when you do that. Eugene Peterson, he said it this way, it is a mistake to concentrate on our sins. It is God's work on our sins that is the main event. Repentance, see, is far more about beholding Christ in his work, being gripped by the grace of God to cover your sins, than it is about your sin itself. Because sin really is like a weed. If you pull it up on your own strength, it'll just grow back and be there again tomorrow. But if you plant something in its place, then the weed won't grow there again. And God, as he graciously disciplines you in this life, is weeding your heart of sins so that the Holy Spirit can plant Christ in their place. And that is his restoring grace. He will make you more like himself. We don't believe you're saved by grace and kept by trying harder. God doesn't get buyer's remorse. He knows what he paid for when he died for you. We believe that you are saved by grace, kept by grace, and restored by grace. The only way that repentance and change happen in the life of the believer is because God has graciously come by his spirit and made you his residence. You are transformed from the inside out by his grace. And that's true of David and us as well. So David's repentance is short and simple because he knows there's no excusing or dressing up with God. He sees right through it. There's only repentance and confession. Confession of what is true of ourselves, that we are great sinners, and what is true of him, that he is an even greater savior. And the only place we can hope to take refuge from the punishment of our sins is in God's grace. And that's exactly what David does. Look at verse 20 again. After David's son dies, he gets up, he cleans himself up, and it says he goes to the house of the Lord to worship. 
And while that might seem odd, it certainly did to David's servants, and it likely does to us as well, David is modeling how to take refuge from his sins and the suffering they produced in the presence of God. David knows that God's heart is bent towards grace and mercy, and his only hope is to throw himself into the arms of his loving father and be covered by him. And that's what we see as Nathan gives God's promise, you will not die. It's the promise of the gospel. Because God has pursued and confronted him in his grace, David has seen his sin and he repents. And in that moment, he is actually freed because he turns to God, his only hope. It is the goodness of God to rescue him. It is the grace of God to rescue him. And he can then sing about the disciplining circumstances in his life. Let the bones you have broken rejoice. And so we see David's enormous sin is outdone by God's extravagant grace. And when we grasp that our greatest sins are nothing compared to his grace, we can sing like David. But there's even more hope than that in the text. More than just David's personal restoration, we see God's promise of salvation to his people in Solomon's birth. At the end of our passage, Solomon is born and he's given another name by God, Jedediah, that means beloved of the Lord. And one day, one day his great-grandson, the truly beloved son of the Lord, Jesus, will come out of all of this mess directly. David had plenty of sons. God could have gone a different route, but he chose to work through one of the greatest sins of David's life to bring salvation to his people. God continued his restorative work in the midst of David's sin, and the lesson is this, our sin will never stop him from rescuing and redeeming us, his church. He will work through the consequences of our sin to bring glory to his name and good for us, his people, because everything is grace. And that's why the assurance of pardon from Psalm 5 is in your worship folder this morning. It is only through the abundance of his steadfast love that we will enter the house of God. And that's how we're transformed. And so the takeaway this morning really is this. You are the man, but the Lord has put away your sin and you shall not die. Sin and its consequences, death and grace and the gospel, they're not just these vague generalities that we talk about as ideas. They are real, grounded, specific things that apply to each and every one of us. Sin really is in you and me. Death really is its consequence, and God's grace really is our only hope. God in his great grace has come to rescue and redeem us from our sins and experiencing that grace, his grace, that is faithful to both uncover your sinful schemes and cover you in his forgiveness is how we will learn to sing about our sins. And while this grace is not always a comfortable experience, it is comforting to know that the hound of heaven is hunting us down even in our worst moments because he loves us. His grace is what lets us look at the reality of our existence. I am guilty just like David was and just like you are. But there now is no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. Punishment has passed over you to the one who gave you his righteousness, that you may enter the house of God as a beloved son or daughter of the king, heir to all that he has, one with him by the power of his spirit. When you grasp that you have been forgiven like that, then you can sing about your sin 
Augustine, he turned, termed, uh, coined this term Felix culpa, which basically translates to happy sin, and that sounds like such an oxymoron, but what he really wanted to communicate was that our sin is the place we can come to know God most profoundly and most intimately because it is our very worst that we get to experience God's grace most fully. Because the solution is only as beautiful as the size of the problem. God's grace is the most beautiful thing in the world to someone who knows their sins, and it drives us not only to repentance, but refuge in God. And a heart acquainted with his grace says, cheer up, I'm far worse than I know, but I'm far more loved than I ever dared dream. And because of that I know, even though I deserve death like David, I gain life by the grace of God. And that's what lets us sing with John Newton. It was grace that taught my heart to fear, and grace my fears relieved. How precious did that grace appear the hour I first believed. Through many dangers, toils, and snares, I've already come. It is grace that brought me safe thus far, and grace will lead me home. Let's pray. Uh, Father, we thank you that all of life is grace, that even in our great sins, you are the even greater Savior. And so we pray this morning as we come uh, in worship, as we have been called into your presence, that you will let us learn what it means to repent and take refuge in you. That we would take shelter from not just the sin out there in the world in your arms, but also that we would take refuge from the consequences of our own sin in your loving arms. That we would not feel the need to clean ourselves up to come to you, but rather that we would run to you in our moments of sin and need because you love to clean us up. Help us hold on to the hope of Christ Jesus, the true and better David, who came to lay down his life for us, that we could know what it is to come into your house with his righteousness, to be called beloved son of the king, beloved daughter of the king, heir to all he has. Let that be the thing that grips us this morning. We love you and we praise you. In your son's name, amen. So uh, the great news is this. Because everything's grace, even when we do things like forget to give y'all slides on Sunday mornings, uh, God's grace and favor are still upon us, right? And so hear this benediction from the Lord. May the Lord bless you and keep you. May the Lord make his face shine upon you and be gracious to you. May the Lord turn his face towards you and give you his peace, both now and forevermore. Amen. Go in his peace.